Hey guys, welcome to Content Candy's new, new show. It's kind of an old show. It's uh, Cinema Bias with myself, Video Drew, and Alex Mack. Please enjoy. Check us out wherever you can find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, what have you. Like and rate and leave a review. That's like a thing you can do on podcasts. And make sure to also check out patreon.com backslash video drew to find out ways that you can support this channel, which is growing. Okay, end of thing. by a couple of minutes, but uh, welcome to Cinema Bias. Uh, I'm Video Drew, this is my co-host Alex Mack, and we've got an intro. Uh, that all night drew let me tell you this joke i heard yeah let me hear it a young blood priest walks into the bar yeah nothing happens that's wow Wow. (laughs) is that your solution of this movie uh no that is not my big take walking into this movie however i'm excited to chat it up it's gonna be a very important film to talk about there's a lot of uh it has a very interesting history overall so i'm excited to chat it up with you you know one of my favorite people overall drew i love you i'm so happy to see you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, before we actually start talking about the movie, Drew, let's kind of introduce ourselves and tell us what exactly who we are and what is it we're doing here. Okay, we can do that. Um, I'm Video Drew. I am here because I love movies, but I haven't seen enough of them. Uh, and I have some intentional, not intentional, I have some sort of like very obvious biases towards uh, and against certain kinds of films. And I, for that reason, have not seen a lot of certain genres, certain certain kinds of things, and I wanted to change that. So about this time, almost like a year ago, I contacted you, Alex, and I was like, let's do a whole show where we force each other to uh, watch movies that the other one likes, Uh, because we have different tastes, I figured, and I figured that would be a good idea. And over time, it sort of evolved to be movies that, like, maybe is outside of both of our comfort zones, or outside one of our comfort zones and in the other person's zone. It's been, like, more mainstream film, Uh, and so that's kind of, like, what the show is, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it, to be honest. And I'm so grateful to you, Drew, to not only bringing, like, us coming together to have this show, but overall, you've introduced to me so many different films I would have never picked up unless it was for this show that I now love. So I'm so grateful. Okay. You're so welcome, Alex. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, I'm, I'm on a little bit of a delay. I can, I can like watch that I'm on a little bit of a delay. So if we over talk each other, it's not because we're both interrupters. It's because mm-hmm. there's a delay here. Yes. 
don't. The weather's making some weird things happen in the world. That's all I can say. <laughs> no, without going into craziness. Yeah, it's been a little hectic handful of days for sure. So guys, the movie that we're gonna be diving into, if you haven't noticed uh, by uh, this selection of our thumbnail is actually 1972's very famous black exploitation film, Superfly, directed by Gordon Parks Jr. Now, this is a very iconic film, not only for, just from the 70s in general, but also it's, it is, Technically, it is the considered the highest grossing exploitation film of all time. It was oh. made with, well, it was made by just a few people, just a, a two or three financiers, and that was made for five hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy one, and it grossed. Can you guess how much it grossed? Wait, you said it was made for five hundred thousand dollars. It was made for five hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot. Wait, let's be honest. That's a lot of money for a movie to cost for a black a black exploitation movie to cost in nineteen seventy five. I feel like that's a that's that's not nothing. Nineteen seventy five. But anyway, how much did I think it made? Let's say fifty million. Okay, well that's that's a lot of money, but that's not <laughs> it. It is the highest grossing black exploitation film of all time, grossing twenty four point eight million dollars at okay, that time. Well, yeah. <laughs> it was also re-released and I believe it was re-released in like the year 2000 or yes Wait, it was re-released in 2000 it was re-released in 2000 in 2004 and it grossed an additional two million okay because I did watch the remake of this uh there is a remake and I do want to say mm -hmm. that I watched it I just want the credit for having watched the remake and not because I accidentally confused which one of the movies you were going to watch <laughs> no I'm, I'm telling you like that sounds like a bit, but no, that's not what happened. It's just I finished this movie, and I was like, I got a little extra timeline, so I'll watch the new one. Maybe there's something in there that like will help explain this phenomenon to me that is super funny. Well, so I, I am kind of a little jealous. I After watching this one, I really want to watch the 2018 remake. I heard almost exclusively bad things, but... It is exclusively bad. <laughs> I've heard I heard that a lot, <laughs> but I, I after watching this first one, I'm really I'm pretty curious overall. But let's just kind of dive into a little bit about the film. Um, actually, yeah. true. you want me to do that thing? Can you do that thing? Sure. And by thing, can you tell me the plot? Kinda. Sure. Do you have like six seconds on the clock? By the way, we don't have any mods tonight because uh, everyone's either uh, off or they have uh, problems with their pipes bursting or don't have any heat or, you know. So I can't be too mad because I'm just like sitting here in LA weather where it's like 59, but that's why. Mm -hmm. So guys, uh, if you feel like donating, please send to streamlabs.com backslash video drew. Uh, we can send in a couple of bucks and it'll be awesome. Because apparently I need to buy a new microphone. Mama needs a new microphone. Mama needs one indeed. Okay. I would like a new he headphone set. That's my goal, personally. I would like right, well, I will give you 60 seconds on the clock, and I'll let you know we have 15, I mean, like, 10 seconds remaining. I'll do a little bit. Like, I would give you like, 10 seconds to some of the plot of this movie, but let's do it. All right. All right, starting now. Okay. This dude is named Youngblood Priest, and he's a cocaine dealer up in Harlem, and he's trying to get out of the business. So he's, like, getting uh, his mentor figure 
who's like this, uh, I think he's like a cook or he owns a nightclub. And he's like, hey, man, hook me up with your connection so I can like get enough cocaine to get out of the business. Well, first he wants the cocaine. He wants the guy to sell him the cocaine. Doesn't happen. Anyway, he gets hooked up with this dirty cop uh, who threatens to, uh, or like he like originally he's going to sell all the cocaine, but then he kind of like threatens his sort of situation and his livelihood and his woman. And then it doesn't look like the guy's going to be able to get out of the cocaine biz once and for all. But then he does by like, by threatening that guy's family. Like, and that's, like, a weird way I feel like that happened to, like, John Lashrina. Uh, and then he threatens that guy's, like, family and child being, like, if you kill me, I will go after your children uh, from the grave because I have all this extra money because I secretly swapped out the money I was supposed to give you for my dirty laundry. And then he was, and then I feel like the movie just ended. Uh, so I guess he got out of the cocaine business and he's no longer going to be a hustler and that's good. Uh, that's it. <laughs> and I, I just like how the last bit there was more of a question than anything. And I don't good. really remember this <laughs> specific way. I looked up at one point it's this was So I absolutely agree. I, I don't think there was anything in particular you missed. It's a very simple plotted film. There's nothing crazy. And I feel like this overall, it's a it's a plot that we're familiar with, especially in gangster films, mm-hmm. and the idea it's of a gangster wanting a different life. I feel that it's yeah, it's very much like a we got to do this one last heist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, before retiring or yeah. just just leaving the business, whatever well, you know, the yeah, crime business, whatever. Trying kind to of go straight is like one of those old tropes. Like it's such an old trope. I feel like you could put it like on a like a wheel of tropes if you're trying to write like a cliche yeah. script. You can just spin it and be like bum 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 detective with like lady problems, and it's like crooked cop, and then you're like Boop, a drug dealer trying to get out of the hustle and like quit the biz, and it has to do one last thing. Mm-hmm. You gotta get enough money in order to head out okay. essentially. I, yeah at no point i understand why he couldn't just quit selling cocaine and go do something else but apparently he has to do one last heist to make sure he has enough money to just mm-hmm. exist i don't know and, and then it's not really a, it's not really for me to say what is and is not count as in existence uh in, in harlem in the 1970s it seems pretty hard well he really he really kind of focus focuses pretty extensively in several conversations that he doesn't know how to do anything else yeah and people really tell it to him pretty consistently throughout the film why would you want to do anything else there's actually a really great quote in the film that says uh, it's a conversation between young blood priests and uh, say, just saying the names. My, my favorite name is pretty spectacular. Who is my favorite name in all? Like, who came ever. up with the name Young Blood Priest? That's not I, don't know. I, I, I need to answer. It kind of reminds me of Dolomite a little bit. Like this movie reminded me a lot of Dolomite, like the original Dolomite, yeah. not Dolomite is my name. Uh, yeah. Because just like a lot of the, of course, this guy's uh, better looking in way better shape uh, and like mm. do karate. Uh, as Dolomite. But there was a little karate. There was There's karate. a little karate, but not that much. The karate in, in this movie is very restrained. But I think we can start seeing some, like, trends uh, in this film that, like, follow the Dolomite trend that I'm, like, starting to get a sense of this is what they mean when they say black exploitation. The black exploitation genre includes these tropes. Uh, it's sort of about this kind of thing. It's like women are finding him irresistible. Uh, you know, like, men want to be him. Like, everyone's scared of him. Uh, you know, he's got an easy time with the ladies. Uh, sex, uh, sex scenes that go on for a little Way bit long. longer than yeah. necessary, but Way too long, I, I, I'm all about yeah. sex positivity, so that's yeah. what I, I'm excited. I was like, in, like, I was like, you know what? Yeah, you get your some, all right. 
Okay, now there's like, like, I just want to bring it back to a really great quote that I heard towards the beginning of the film uh, between Youngblood Priest and Eddie. And he was just telling him that I, he wanted to get out. And he, Eddie says to him, oh, sweet shit. Oh, sweet shit. Say those junkies must have knocked a hole in your head. You're going to give all that up? Eight-track stereo, color TV in every room, and can snort a half a piece of dope every day? That's the American dream. Well, yeah, isn't it? Great line. <laughs> and I was like, that's a good one. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, and I think, you know, why these movies are, we don't have to talk about what, what, you know, the big overarching why it's important. I mean, this is a movie just the way a lot of things are movies. This movie, though, I do think has a lot of commentary about what it means to be part of this universe. Like I do, I don't know anything about the director or writer of this film, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're from Harlem, used to be a drug dealer. I mean, because a lot of the stuff that, that's involved in this is just really just, a, yeah, about like how it's a living. This isn't like a glamorous drug movie. This is like a movie where people just are doing drugs and it's kind of like, they're just doing business. It's kind of, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, they're just business people. Kind of remind me of Blow in a little bit of ways. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely yeah. see that. It It's, this film when it was released was in very controversial. Oh. And it was in, it was very very controversial. I was doing research on it, and it was controversial for multiple things. One, they there was the argument that it glamorized drug use. It doesn't even glamorize. It barely showed it barely showed it having an effect on people, which is interesting. That yeah, I thought that was a little that was a little weird. Where it was like oh, it was very it was very oh. casual. Like yeah. you're just you're just going about your day, going grocery shopping. Like people were doing conversations. Nobody was like being loud or like intrusive. Like everyone was doing coke the same way that the people drink coffee or like you know like they were just doing bumps. You're babysitting the kid, the grandkids. What do you have a little bump of coke? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Junius Griffin, who is actually the head of the Hollywood branch at the NAACP actually said as a response to the film, we must insist that our children are not exposed to a steady diet of so-called black movies that glorify black males as pimps, dope pushers, gangsters, and super males. And, well, yeah, and I mean, it was- All the first ones were bad. And then super males is just sort of like white anxiety. It's like, let's not show them being like pimps, drug dealers, blah, blah. But then also like, don't show them being like better than us because like, you know, that'd be bad. <laughs> Well, it's well from all the from the very limited amount of black exploitation films that I've seen personally. It does center on drug use. It does center on crime overall, as right. well yeah, as bad. and those things aren't like yeah. not, not the bad or good. You know, those things are like just like any movie. Like it it doesn't absolutely the argument here. I don't know if this person was. You said he was the head of the NAACP, so we're talking about yes. black this. Yes, yeah, you can see the how, Hollywood like, branch. Mm -hmm. Almost like the way that Cosby used to make these arguments that, like, you know, there shouldn't be rappers that wear low slung pants, and like, you know, people should be, you know, the standards of the community, and black people should act a certain way. That way was like white people, you know, non-threatening. Mm -hmm. But like the last phrase there is, "Don't show black people to be supermen." Like, why not? I I don't think it's so much the idea of super males. I think it's the idea of what he was trying to get at is the idea of like hyper like hyper masculine on the verge of potentially be arguably being toxic males where they're impenetrable where they're they're 
they're they're not human at that point. Um, I mean, do you think his relationship to women in this movie is toxic? I was actually wondering that because I was like, he seems like more well for somebody who's like sticks around. Let's say because you know James Bond is a toxic figure in my opinion. Oh, had this SJW hour with Drew, but like no, he is like James Bond. I think we both agreed is like a kind of shitty toxic guy who is just an asshole. Wait, uh, you mean Henry you. Fonda? You mean Henry Fonda? Do I? Do I mean Henry Fonda? Oh, I, I said oh, uh, James wait, I, Bond. Who? James Bond. Oh, I thought you said Jane Fonda. No, <laughs> God, no, no. And I was like, I'm like, well, Bond. there must be stuff I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I remember Hen Henry Fonda was no is like known for being really awful. <laughs> I'm like Jane Fonda. Henry Fonda like Bond movie I'm forgetting. No, James yeah. Bond. Like you oh, know, James Bond, Bond absolutely. Okay. I think so, that, you know, I think that would be the sort of white equivalent yeah. of like you know this kind of hyper masculinity. But I don't think like I'm like mm -hmm. good. Well, I think that one of the big difference is is that you know when James Bond first came out, absolutely the idea of a hyper masculine, one hundred percent toxic male super spy is not a huge deal. But also there was so many other films where. Uh, why people were in these other roles where they could be all these different characters versus the idea of a film that is so focused on blackness and there's very limited and films yeah. especially that were wide release and therefore if you're getting almost exclusively films that uh, that highlight blackness and they all deal with a, like deal with like the same kind of characters and themes. I could see that argument being made at that time. Right, but I think the difference is white people are allowed to be whatever kind mm -hmm. of characters they want. They can be spies, yeah. they can be whatever. And it's like mm -hmm. black people are supposed to not not only just like stay in their lane and be like good mm -hmm. black people and be good representations of their race, mm -hmm. which means like good upstanding citizens. So they can't be like super spies and they can't mm -hmm. go kill people and they can't sleep around. They have to like be a better standard than like white men are adhered to. And they have to treat women better. I mean, that's the argument this person's making. And I think what's kind of cool about black exploitation is it's like, no, we don't. Like not only that, but like we're gonna do your super spy shit and your karate shit. And we're gonna like, we're gonna make it in our world like people are even more into it than like they are in your mm -hmm. world. Like women oh are even like this world, and it's it's pretty funny. It's like it's good trope. I have to say, you're absolutely right. I definitely agree with you, especially in terms of the female characters and the again limited amount of black exploitation films that I've seen. They feel much more. They're into them. They're like, yeah. Yes. They're like, fuck yeah. There's actual, they're like, there's like, actual conversations yeah. and motivations and relationships, not only between the men and women and romantic, but otherwise. Yeah, I mean, and it's very refreshing. Right. I especially mean, from what's cool about watching Dolomite and Dolomite is my name back to back is you really got a sense of not just like what Dolomite was about, but like mm -hmm. what was going on in the world during that time, what his relationship was to the woman mm -hmm. who played, uh, what was her name, Mama something. Uh, you know, like, what, what their actual relationships look like and what sort of the anxieties and, and desires and dreams and aspirations sort of propelled a lot of the stuff that was going on in this movement during the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's, and I thought, I think a lot of it was this like, you know, almost mocking of white anxiety about, uh, you know, sleeping with a black man or people who sleep with black men, you know, that's such a huge racial anxiety at the time and still to this day, you know, but I think well, that it's played up in uh, black exploitation. I absolutely agree. I think there are 
Well, it's just something I, I think there is, a, especially then, obviously, a real fear of, uh, I mean, just especially in show film, the idea of this a black man taking uh, taking the white woman and, and her purity and all these horrible, yeah, these horrible stereotypes. It's, it's ridiculous. And anyway, but but it's also really funny that especially in adult in my name is uh, in Dolomite the film as well as this one they both the first sex scenes they have are intentionally with white women oh so i was like oh in this film like the first yeah the first one we say we see that they just got done having sex and and, we, and that was the intro pretty much the introduction of uh, a young uh young blood priest Oh, no, no, well, I'm like sitting that. in bed and he's like, oh, yeah, I thought Dolomite had sex with the black chick first. He it was like he sleeps with uh, the white chick first. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And then after he has sex That's with really the white Yeah, my argument that I just made stands that this is like, you know, this was as much a commentary mocking sort of white anxiety about sleeping with black people. I, like, you know, what, what happens when you're, you know, your girl goes to sleep with black, well, uh, you know, with a black guy. Um, but it's also like it's mocking it, but it's also you know, it's in this world that they have in the black exploitation world, in the universe that they've created. That's like a thing to do that's acceptable, and women want to do it, and they're not going to get in trouble. They're not getting arrested for it. They're not getting people are accused of rape. I mean, it's very different from the reality of the situation of what happened uh, historically in America when like you know black men would sleep with white women, or you know, and it would just be this, you know, it's this horror show of like you know you know, people and prejudices and stuff like that. So I think black exploitation, what I'm starting to learn is it's kind of like an alternate universe that it's set in where like everyone knows body for some reason. Absolutely. I would actually really love to see that. I think that's really cool. I never thought of it like that. But yeah, there there it definitely feels like there is this alternate universe of yeah. of the black where the black exploitation films are real. <laughs> <laughs> Like the term black exploitation is like such an interesting term for it because it almost implies that there's some white director behind the scenes who's making them make this movie or like they're it's, it seems like it's saying like it's a portmanteau of black and exploitation, right? That's what black exploitation is a portmanteau of. It's combining black and exploitation. But it doesn't seem very exploitative. I don't know. Well, it's well, the reason is because at that time obviously black exploitation films but there was similar to bollywood they have their own they have their own huge movie making force that whip out thousands of movie thousands of movies a year similarly we up until the mid 80s there was actually a black run essentially like version of hollywood uh, making hundreds hundreds and not hundreds not thousands maybe of movies but it was there was quite a few movies where movies were like consistently opening up every single week well every week more like every other week but like and so like was it like it's not like an alternative hollywood like they must have been being getting distribution from somewhere i mean mm -hmm. right yeah, there were a lot of these actually films were actually only distributed in communities in black communities. Oh. In particular. They weren't they weren't in traditional theaters and white neighborhoods. Oh, I see. It's, what, um, it's 
it's like what what's his name was talking about um better call Saul dude bob odenkirk was talking about at the end of dolomite is my name where he's talking about the audience and these old movie houses like up in harlem where they've converted old movie yes. houses but yeah oh exactly and that's how it became had it and as a result those movie those smaller theaters they were okay with having these films stay in the theaters for like six months or however long it needed um yes absolutely it's it's actually referenced that several people in this film in particular were actually a uh, not the director of undercover brother but gordon park jr who directed superfly um he ended up passing in like the late 80s however one of his apparently one of his mentees was direct was a, one of the financiers or one of the screenwriters or something involved with undercover Wait, brother was directed by malcolm dealey is that right i want to say that superfly right. was directed by gordon parks jr yeah superfly was but like who directed undercover brother i'm forgetting uh, let me just double check real quick i feel like it's malcolm dealey but maybe i'm wrong Sorry, I tried to grind this to a halt, but you know, trivia. <laughs> no, I'm glad you asked. And the answer is Malcolm D. Lee. Yes! So he did Girls Trip, he did Best Man Holiday, The Best Man, oh, Night School. Mm -hmm. So, but Superfly was incredibly huge at that time. Obviously, it was incredibly influential on on other films. He, it was, he ended up directing a lot of uh, Gordon Parks. He ended up directing a lot of seventies black exploitation films. Three: The Hard Way, Aaron Loves Angela, Thomasina and Bushrod. But a lot, a lot of the actors ended up involved, like Ron O'Neill, Sheila Elaine Frazier, ended up acting continuously until. Up until like 2015, these are like well-known actors. But now, like, but it's funny because you say well-known, but it's like I, you know, not that like I'm the gold standard of having heard of people, but like not well-known, not mainstream, well-known within this like subset of of Hollywood of, of this of this black exploitation genre. I'm guessing, right? Because Absolutely. like, oh, sorry. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're not like, we're not, if we, it's not so much that if we do not hear about them, they're not famous or anything like that, obviously. But it's amazing that they've been consistently working for as long as they have. But for any actor, it's kind of nuts. I'm wondering what's going to do next. A lot, a lot of success. Should we talk about our bold takes about this movie or like our favorite characters and scenes and lines? Mmm. I think this is an incredibly quotable movie, so I'm gonna I would rather go with uh, quotes personally. Okay. I mean, I thought for some of the movie they were just kidding about his name being Youngblood. Uh, I thought that was so fucking funny. I thought that was so good, just perfect name. I like. What, what, how do they come up with the name? It just doesn't make sense. Youngblood is what, is what people called each other back then, or like you know, sort of black people. They would you know, black people refer to. Younger men is young blood. Like I mean, that's just sure. a term. Priest, young blood priest. Priest is not oh, a great name. I mean, right? Because it's, priest. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a great movie name. It's a great literary name. Yeah, like you would find in a book 
circa. That's also a great, like, ironic take on a name. Like, this character, like James Bond, like, um, I'm trying to think of other great names in history, but I can't think of any good name that's as good as Youngblood Priest. It's the best name that's ever existed. Full stop. Um, uh, you know, I guess, like, Biff Tannen is another great name. It's just like, it's a name that invokes sort of what this guy is. He's both of the streets, he's a young blood, and he's a, he's a priest, which it means he's like, he's got a higher calling. He's somebody who's like above, sort of above the, the fray in a way, and he's trying to get out of this lifestyle. I, I'm kind of, it's kind of interesting to me that we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier how it seems like it's a well-known trope the idea of a any kind of criminal to whose long-term goal is to get out of crime and it's mentioned it's in the godfather what they want to do they want to go straight it's mentioned in goodfellas a handful of characters they want to go straight casino uh it happens so often, and that trope, that trope is like really very popular, even in non-crime films, which is kind of uh, which is really kind of funny. But overall, I have to say though that this movie is kind of unique in the way it really goes about it, where it's not so much how he's he is like oh we have to do one last big run kind of situation but these little these small interactions about where he just young blood describes why how he plans to go out are really really interesting mm-hmm. yeah i think this this movie more so than i think dolmite and some of the other ones we've seen so far it's like it really does have this idea of like the bad guy is the institution Right? I mean, the bad guy, and this is literally, turns out, like, the guy who's, like, willing to sell him all the drugs and have him work for him is, is the police lieutenant. Right? And so, like, they, they call in this guy, Scatter, and Scatter's like, they're like, who do you work for? And Scatter's like, you know, I work for Youngblood. And then they're like, okay, well, we're going to go pick up Priest. And, you know, it turns out, like, that that's part of, like, the systematic issue is that the police want the drug stuff to continue going on in Harlem. And that's not that far from reality. You know, <laughs> You know, that's really not that far from, I mean, I don't think there was a, like, I don't know, maybe there was, New York was a shitty place, and for all intents and purposes, it's still pretty shitty. Maybe there was, like, a police uh, lieutenant who was, like, the main drug supplier to Harlem during the time, but the, the fact is, and what this, like, really brings to light is that, like, if there was, there'd be nothing could do about it. There'd be, like, no, as, like, a young, like, slinger, like, on the streets, there'd be, like, nothing you could do about it if you found out, like, the police were drug dealers or like if you're down at the chief of police like you know there's nothing like you, you would just have to keep working for him forever because like who are you going to tell and who's going to believe you and like what authority do you have yeah yeah it's well the i there is mentioning uh, eddie even mentioned in another conversation with young blood he mentions i know it's a rotten game but it's the only one the man left us to play. That's a stone cold truth. And he also later says uh, a handful of times, it's mentioned in several lyrics and some of the songs that's mentioned um, as well, that, oh, it'd be a shame to leave all that money for the man. And it's, it's, it's also kind of funny. So he's referring to the man that's 
essentially that's running everything, obviously, but he's also referring to what I assume in this film is the idea of white control mm -hmm. over the black community in this particular case, because all the outside of one or two white women in this film that young blood ends up ha that has a relationship with, they're all white cops and they're very corrupt, actively corrupt. Yeah. I, I mean, this is something that I think, especially after this year, like hits especially home that like, not only are they corrupt, not only are these bad cops, but these are bad cops who are like particularly interested in perpetuating the idea that that black men are to blame. Like these are cops who like don't they don't you don't at any point get the sense of like the lieutenant's like yeah and then when I make my million dollars then like I'll just quit selling drugs. No, this guy wants Priest and Scatter and like Freddie and all the characters to be working under him forever because he's. We don't even get a sense that he's like making any money off the deal. We just get the sense that he is an evil man who wants these black men to keep hustling for him. A priest, as a defining character trait, just wants to stop slinging dope. Mm -hmm. Like his friend, uh, what's his friend's name? Um, Eddie. Eddie, yeah. Eddie's like, his whole thing is like, what's wrong with it? Like, he's, Eddie's argument is almost like, it's an honest business because, like, you know, we make money and, like, you get dope. And what's wrong with like he It's what we know, it's the world we know. And we don't even get a sense that Priest has, like, another idea for what he wants to do. He just doesn't want to be a drug dealer anymore. And as far as that we've seen their life up until this point, we haven't seen them come into that much trouble or, like, issues within the drug dealing world. It's just, like, as a concept, he doesn't, it doesn't sit right with him. And also, something that's kind of interesting is that the act of drug dealing in this movie feels very tame especially compared to what we've seen in films nowadays, where there's drug busts all the time and people are constantly trying to shoot at you and beat you up for your stash, all this, uh, all in, in, in general, it's, it's horribly violent 24 seven. And this movie, Youngblood is just like casually walking around. He's going to clubs. He's, yeah. you know, he has sex with a bunch of women, but he's just like, he's it doesn't seem like that bad of a lifestyle. Casual. Yeah. You know what, you know what it is? Because I think that this is actually something they did in the remake that I, I don't give the remake a lot of credit for anything. But the remake did make this clearer. Because I, I think also that what you have to remember about black exploitation films is they're like not, I, I mean, I, I remind myself of this a lot. They're not for me, they're not coded for me. They're not the yes. language it's speaking to and the issues that it's speaking to and the things that it's in the way that they speak and the world that they live in. It's not the world that I live in. And that's, and that's not, doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It doesn't mean that like it's an incomprehensible movie. It just means it's like not a movie that is coded towards things I know. And that's like perfectly fine. But like, yeah, in the remake, it was like more clear because they tried to make it more of a Hollywood film. They're like, he's trying to get out of the business because he doesn't like being violent, and sometimes he has to force people to be violent. Like, in the beginning of this movie, it's sort of, like, tapped on for a hot second that, like, he's going to make uh, Fat Freddy's wife go into prostitution unless Fat Freddy, like, holds up the, you know, does this robbery. And, like, in the movie, he shoots a lady. Like, he shoots Fat Freddy, the equivalent of Fat Freddy's wife, in the stomach because, like, you know, and he's like, you know what, I really fucking hate doing this. This is not the kind of person I am. Yeah. Uh, Wes is saying they're not good for me either, and I'm black. Oh, well. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't say yes or that doesn't say it's a good or bad thing. I'm putting no moral judgments on it. I'm just saying that, like, sometimes I'm watching Dolomite or I'm watching this movie and I'm like, this doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like something else. Like, they're not, they're, 
it's not paced the way that like a movie that I'm used to is paced, but that's because it wasn't made in Hollywood by a bunch of producers that are like, you know, it wasn't a Hollywood production. That went the traditional route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are not Hollywood movies. These are movies that were made, I think, pretty much by like, you know, this one was made for a lot of money, but it was still kind of made in a bootstrap kind of style. Yeah. Well, I'm actually getting conflicted reports. Now, on a few different websites, it said that the producers, um, it was financed by Gordon Parks, obviously, who ended up directing Shaft and a few other films, but as well as uh, Six Shore, who ended up directing the sequel to this movie, uh, The Return of Superfly, but he's also a producer on this movie. There's actually conflicting reports saying it was made for 500,000, but there's other reports saying it was made for 58,000. That sounds absolutely more correct because (laughs) 500,000. Yeah, I I read that and I'm like, I guess that's so much money. Oh, I guess that's five zeros. I have to write down. It's going to turn out to be like how Wolf of Wall Street turned out to be like the movie Wolf of Wall Street turned out to be like a Malaysian money uh, laundering scheme. Like the people Mm -hmm. who financed Wolf of Wall Street were these Malaysian politicians who turned out that they were laundering dirty money through the making of Wolf of Wall Street, which is like hilarious. But if you were telling me this movie was made for $500,000, 1975 money, and it looked like that, and that was a film, like somebody's head was gonna roll. Like that's either like, that's either a con, like this is either like a front for something, or I don't know. But like, if it is, I'm, I'm impressed that someone got this movie made for that much. <laughs> it's a, it's impossible. For sure, it's definitely impressive, for sure. Um, I do want to address something you're saying, Style and Moose, which is something pretty, I feel like it's definitely one of the more iconic aspects of this film, is that the best thing about this movie is the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I would have to agree, it's definitely one of the more iconic aspects of this film. The soundtrack was um, done almost, it was done exclusively by, written, performed by Curtis Mayfield. And he he's actually shown in the movie in the singing at the bar at the cafe and singing Pusher Man. And that song was almost supposedly nominated for an Oscar for Best oh, Original Song. Not that, that this movie is one of the few movies where like the soundtrack got yeah. more money than the movie made. Like exactly. Like this and, the, the script for this movie was only 45 minutes long, like 45 pages long, sorry. And, mm-hmm. and every page is supposed to be like a minute of script, which is why like 90% of this movie is just people walking around or getting into cars or getting out of cars. It's, it's more so than the plot. This movie is a vibe. It's an aesthetic. It's, it's a vibe. It's a, and that's the same as Dolomite too. It's a vibe. It's like, look at this like guy. Like, look, like we're watching a journey in the sense that it is like a hero's journey. There's a beginning, middle, and end. There's a bad guy, the bad guy's part of the authority, like, you know, the last movie, it told me it was, like, the mayor or whatever, and this one, it's, like, the police captain, but it's mostly just about these dudes walking around being, like, badasses and knowing karate and, like, the ways that people respect them. It's them walking around and everyone knowing who they are and everyone, like, respecting them and girls wanting to sleep with them and guys being afraid of them, you know? Well, there is actually, now that you say it, there was actually one scene that really took me by surprise. And when Youngblood and Eddie, they sat down in a restaurant, they sat down at a table, and suddenly these three guys came up to them. And they're like, oh, can we sit here? And they're like, actually, we're meeting someone. They're like, oh, we'll take a second. I was like, yeah. And they pretty much asked them for money, essentially. And they're like, you have a lot of money now. You need to pay your dues as a black man. And... Mm -hmm. 
And Youngblood flat out said, I'm not paying you guys. You guys are awful. I don't want any part of you. I am not going to give you any kind of money. Go elsewhere. And they're like, we will get you. We will be back, <laughs> essentially. So um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, oh, This it, it felt very, not kind of similar to a mafia moment, essentially. Where, yeah, like a mafia moment where it's like, because oh, it was more, I associate that behavior more with businesses. Oh, you're opening up a business here. I'll protect you if you give me so much money kind of thing, especially in an area that's a lot of gang activity or whatever. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. Yeah. It was for this, it, it was kind of a similar situation, but you don't really see it all that much towards directed towards like one person, essentially. Look. And I think Western no wondering what they were referencing. I think Western comment with um This is important. I think this mm -hmm. is where sorry I'm showing. This is sort of getting to the heart of it, which is that before these kind of movies, there was no representation of the black experience that actually seemed truthful. There was like there wasn't black filmmakers going around. There was no Spike Lee, there was no Malcolm D. Lee. There was nothing to see that we, the Hollywood would portray you a certain way or cast like a black actor once every blue moon or there'd be a Sydney Poitier or something. But there's no, there's no representation of what life was like for you or your friends or people that you knew or your community. There was like nothing. And black exploitation came along and there were all these people like making movies for like small budgets and produced by like, this movie was produced by like two dentists and a friend and like, sorry, two dentists and like the dad, like uh, Gordon Park's dad, right? So like, mm -hmm. No matter how much this movie uh, may, it makes, I mean, sorry, well, it was made, and it was made with, like, not Hollywood money. It was made just by, like, two dentists and somebody's father. And you really get this sense of, like, you get a feel of what it was like to be somebody in this community because this movie is less a movie than it is, like you said, like a vibe. This is just a slice of life. Like, whatever the overarching story is, uh, and, like, we can, like, have our critique about the way it's told and, like, be like, this isn't, the dialogue isn't blah, 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 the plot doesn't blah, blah. I wasn't surprised, you know, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do that. The most important thing was that it's, it was, it existed. The important thing about it was that like, it was like the MCU or the Matrix because it was this whole universe that was a reflective of what you and your friends and your family looked like and believed and did and, you know. There was very few, also something to remember is that I, 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 I it's almost distracting. It really is. The, the, the consistent, it feels very consistent where the direct, uh, like we, where the thought process was, we, not only do we want to make a sexy film, we need to make a sex positive film in terms of black people. Because there's like, there, especially in film or in particular, because, you know, we've seen sex scenes in, with white people and white couples, not as much with, uh, with inner race, obviously, but there's so much, the length of the sex scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they go no, I, I get having a sex scene, it makes it sexy in theory, but... Yeah. There was like a there was like Earth an eight point, minute sex scene. That it's not for me. But then again, <laughs> also not for me. Like very clearly, the filmmakers didn't like don't didn't, didn't make this movie for like white chicks in the future to like give a shit about. Like this was not yeah, exactly. speaking to somebody else's experience. Mm -hmm. And I think 
what's interesting is to like for the one time be on like the opposite end of that and realize just how many films there are probably out there that like uh, people of uh, people of color have been like watching like you know we we're like oh we love this we love watching these kind of movies and people are just, other people must just be like none of this makes sense to me we don't love Adam McKay shit like what are you talking about like we don't love watching Nolan like I don't know you know there's just it's, there must be a lot of directors out there and a lot of territory that uh, people that have been people of color have been watching all this time being like, okay, I guess we're kind of forced to like it because it's what's out there and it's what's popular. It's what all our friends are talking about, but like, it doesn't track with us. It doesn't speak to us. There's nothing, there's nobody on screen that looks like us and it wasn't made by people like, you know, like us. Uh, I don't know. I find that sort of eye opening in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think it was, um, it was really, I, I was very surprised at how, just like you said, how slice of life, 70s Harlem it yeah. was. I wonder now, if it was actually filmed in Harlem. It was filmed in Harlem. Funny you should ask that. It was filmed in Harlem and it was filmed. So New York was always really hard to film in, like notoriously hard to film in, yeah. especially during this period of time. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just like there were no permits, nothing like that. But this film was like one of the few ones that got by because just kind of like Bullamite, it was, it was just done with this like, this, this really non-union crew, it was just a group of people, and they were all black. Like It was the first movie I think that was made that was like an all black, a black crew. It was behind the scenes, but also black financiers yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, so again, like I don't, I don't know like how it was made for $500,000. Like I don't know where that money came from, but that's crazy. And I'm so glad that it did. Um, but yeah, this movie was able to film in Harlem because they were the, they were from, that air. I mean, they, they passed as people that were just hanging out in Harlem. Like, no one was going to pay them any mind. And also, like, the police didn't really patrol Harlem for people shooting film. Uh, you know, they weren't a big Hollywood production. They obviously didn't have anything to give the city. There was no tax credit yet. Uh, so they filmed because they were able to film. And because the movie is 90%, people just walking around and doing shit. Like, they didn't really, I mean, their, their budget here, like, they could have kept costs pretty low, I imagine. Mm -hmm. um, what I do find interesting about this is like the NAACP argument, while like very conservative and sort of like uptight and rigid and silly, I think in a lot of ways, uh, did have some merit to it, which is that this movie did inspire, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, I wanna make sure I got the name right. Oh, it did, okay, yeah. It, it inspired yeah. Freeway Rick Ross. I thought his name was Rick Ross, but then there's like a musician, Rick Ross. Uh, it inspired Rick Ross, like the guy who was the most famous, Rick Ross, who was like the most famous big time cocaine dealer in America. Like he was, yeah, yeah. It was like the guy who like, who? Biggest, yeah, biggest cocaine dealer in uh, early 80s was Rick oh. Ross. And he says like he was inspired 100% by this movie. So like they weren't wrong that this movie is, makes drug dealing or at least makes the character of Priest somewhat aspirational. But like, what the fuck ever. Like, I don't, I don't buy the argument that black people have to hold themselves to a higher standard and only be good guys and only portray themselves as like the most above sin kind of characters because that's ridiculous. And there's no such thing as like an interesting character who's without sin or like a good person. Yeah. Again, I think it was just more of a direct reaction to the lack of, in their eyes, positive, traditionally positive, black role models in film up until then yeah. i mean there was no <laughs> there was no black yeah, jimmy stewart there was very limited yeah very limited no, role there was no black jimmy stewart there was no black gary cooper there was no black you know there was no black equivalent of like you know the father knows that you know you know there's no until cosby there was really no role model mm -hmm. like that 
Um, but that, that ain't that ain't the fault of this movie. Like people should be allowed to tell whatever the stories they want to tell, and there should be no in no way, shape, or form was it the responsibility of of Gordon Park Jr. to make a movie where like this character is above drug dealing or above a life that is is actually reminiscent to what somebody might be going through during this time. Why? And not only that, but the movie itself is like about him trying to get out of the drug business. So like originally the NAACP uh, president like said that he was gonna like try to get the movie revoked or like taken out, like to take the film out, you know, film out of the canisters, just take it out of movie houses unless they reshot the ending to show Priest getting shot or otherwise like somehow punished for his uh, for his sin of drug dealing. Because like that would make it a story that, that was acceptable, right? Because that way there's a moral to it. You do drugs, mm-hmm. you sell drugs, you get shot, you go, you die or whatever. But because this movie just kind of ends with him like looking off and being like, fuck you, dude. Like, I'm going to kill your family. I spent that $100,000 of yours on hiring two hitmen. Like, I'm in fucking the end of Breaking Bad. I'm going to um, kill your family. Yeah. By the way, I still think he could have done that move without, he could have kept that $100,000, right? Because all he does is like, I hired hitmen and then the money isn't there. He could have just taken two the money. Hitmen. Said hired, he could have just lied and said he hired him, and there's no proof that he hired him then, and there won't be any unless like the guy kills him. So well, he could yeah, have walk white and have like the guy standing with like a little. Well, he said that there's like he, he said, said there's lied. Why couldn't he have just been lying? There's no evidence of it. We know that he did it because the, the only reason why he said he didn't, he assumed that he didn't take up that contract was because. You don't have enough money to take out the contract. Yeah, <laughs> right. but like, but yeah, but he could have just he could have just come up with this plan, not hired anyone to do anything, and then put the money somewhere else, like to go get it later, and then been like, hey, I did this thing, and I hired these hitmen, and like, you'd only find out if you try to kill me, but they're definitely there, and then he could have walked out with a hundred thousand dollars. I'm just saying. That's true. That's true. I, I do want to address something. I, I do want to address something in the chat saying Stanley Moose says, I love how Quinn Tarantino has kept this genre alive. And that is not true. <laughs> well, he's kind of have. He kept the genre. He's not a black man himself, but he's kept this genre very much alive. Well, sure. Sure, to a certain extent, he's heavily inspired, but we can't say uh, in the black exploitation genre is alive because of a white man. We can't say that, really. I mean, no, but what he's saying, and I think what he's saying is that he's keeping the spirit of this genre, which has otherwise gone away, uh, alive and making the kind of films like Jackie Brown, making films like Pulp Fiction, uh, Reservoir Dogs, like Reservoir Dogs, even movies that have the spirit of, of the sort of meandering, you know, slice of life, uh, small time criminals <laughs> doing stuff. Uh, you know, I think because we don't really have those in many movies that do kind of have the vibe of that. And yeah, Quentin Tarantino is very much inspired by black exploitation films. Like Absolutely. he's like, yeah. martial arts stuff that they this very much in like involved in this. Like that's all of Kill Bill. I mean, yeah, I would say that like I'm not sure if about alive because I'm not sure if A, the genre still is alive. I don't think it is. Like the way the white people make black movies now is like so gross like we decide that we're going to make the color purple or we're going to make uh beloved or we're going to make 12 years of slave or uh, yeah 12 years of slave, right well, yeah, I um so. tra- i don't know if it was written by a woman because i know it was directed by steve mcqueen like i don't know if, who wrote it or anything i, 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 I was thinking of that was like 
Oh, the help. The help. I was thinking of the help. The help. Oh, yeah. White well, guy. Like, Yay, no, savior. If I had a yeah. movie that's called like Black Exploitation, it would be the help. Like that's to me what the portmanteau Ooh. would be. No, like, uh -uh. I, I'll beat you. I'll beat you. Green Book. What's that guy's name who directed The Help? Ty? Not Ty Sheridan. Ty. Wait, let me find out. Let me find out. Give me a hot minute. Give me a hot I don't minute. know. But fuck that guy. It's, it's yeah. And not to mention Octavia Spencer and Viola Davis both say that they regret making that movie. Oh, they <laughs> like, regret it so much. It was Viola it was Davis is like, I fucking hate that I made that movie. I had this conversation with somebody over in the Facebook group of Schmodown because we were talking about, you know, there's a new slice in the Schmodown called Black Cinema, and people were debating what goes and does not go in the slice, which I think is an interesting conversation to have. It is. People were saying, you know, I think it is interesting, but they were saying that the help isn't going to be in Black Cinema, and I went, it probably is. Like, whether or not, they are saying, well, it was made by a white person. Like, you know, the, the moral of it is a white savior thing, blah, blah, blah. And I went, yeah, but, uh, like, that's not the standard. It's not an ethical or moral standard. The standard is really... Does it feature like a black cast? Does it, or like you know, pr pr predominantly black cast? Does it have a black director, or is it like you know for black audiences? I mean, that's I, that's that, well, that really. I remember having this discussion with a few people about what movies because the people that are writing these questions are white, all of them, and it's uh, it's no critique of them in particular. I do trust them to. I know, I know. You know, pick correct. You know, right, do correct I don't think. I think Jose is Spanish, right? Oh, I didn't. I, I didn't know he was a. I didn't know he was a question writer. My bad. I, I think so. I didn't know. I'm pretty sure he oh. is. Oh, I. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. And uh, but is it so? It, it's definitely because I've heard because I've heard several definitions of what black cinema is, and there's there's a different, and everyone has their, a very different definition. Well, here's the um, thing. It's not ought to be the gatekeeper of black cinema. I think that's yes. what the end of the, the end of the day. The, the what that's being what's being what's being trying to accomplish here is something that's good and right. And I don't think it's like for us to just immediately just start to nitpick because it's not in our comfort zones or we as players or fans aren't as familiar with these movies. Because what the point of it is is not to categorically challenge. I know ironic coming from me. Uh, whether something is or is not black cinema, the point is to incorporate more movies that are that feature black people that feature black cast that feature black filmmakers and just incorporate them in a general matter into more of this thing there should be Absolutely. there should be questions about Bill Knight and and Superfly because people know about you know not me and maybe not some of the players in the game and maybe not the majority of players in the game but that doesn't make them any less viable important or you know yeah. uh, instrumental in like influencing Quentin Tarantino and stuff then all the shitty mac and me kind well, of movies we love. Well, the thing is, I, I definitely agree with you there. I have been told that by a few people um, who are all black that have mentioned a white person can make some can make an, a black exploitation inspired film or a or a black cinema inspired film, but they cannot make a black cinema film. Well, here's so the thing. Gonna, look, look, what you're doing. You know, the problem is that with that, you're dismissing any film that features black cast that was made before 1990 because there weren't any black filmmakers. Exactly. That's why I. That's thing. I don't know the answer to this question. It's it's a really difficult question 
to answer in general yeah. because some films that, that I associated with black cinema, well, I mean, some films that I associated with black cinema, such as Training Day, as well as um, uh, not, Fo uh, not Foxy Brown, but Jackie Brown, uh, one of my, actually, that's my favorite Tarantino movies. I've yeah, been told I mean, that those are, um, was I was told by definition, Training Day is. Um, training day is because it really focuses on not only the black experience, but it was done by a black director, also a black writer. Therefore, that makes it specifically a black story, as well as making a black cinema. I, I, don't, know. I, don't, know. I, I don't mean to go off on yeah. the tangent about it because I think that you're really we're really getting into the danger here of 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 gatekeeping and saying that movies aren't black or like that they are in our. The point is to just incorporate as many different kinds of movies as, as wide of an experience. As possible to get the most amount of things we should it should be the color purple even though the color purple was made by spielberg because the color purple was an influential film that like you know got oprah like you know the, one of her big first film roles it had like it was based on a book it was like you know it's a huge movie like are we gonna say it's not black a black cinema because even though the cast not white director well, it's not really for us in particular it's to not say. for us to say. yeah yeah it's, I've also been told specifically any, but also I've heard a, quite a few films that I never thought about as black, as black cinema as, and they, and, and I've been told that those are considered black cinema. I've also been told um, films that deal with uh, civil rights and slavery are technically part of black cinema, but are not, but are they are technically considered black cinema, but they're not exactly films that are reached to for well, black cinema. Right, and I think that's exactly right. So with movies like yeah. The Help and The Color Purple, they really aren't for Rainbow. black people, they're yeah. for white people to feel good about themselves for liking the film. Like, yes, honestly, that, that is what we're talking about mm -hmm. here. But that doesn't mean they're not part of the black cinema thing because they're part of the black experience and that people you know pe they don't have that many movies about the black experience and so i feel like any movie that speaks to that is a black cinema movie but that's in my that case any movie that has a black character's point no, not any movie that has a black character any movie that has the is, is speaking to the issue of the black experience not any movie not any movie with a black character any movie in which the, the race is like the central theme of the film if race is the central theme of the film then i feel like yes if race is not the central theme in the film and it's like, you know, Jumanji, you know, I, I feel like that's the different conversation. That's fair. That's a but fair I don't think, I think it's really like uncool to be like, no, the movie has to have had a black director or a black writer or, uh, you know, it needs to be this or that in order to count as black cinema. Cause I think that's disqualifying a lot of movies in which a lot of people like Whoopi Goldberg in the comments. Yeah. Whoopi Goldberg movies like, you know, Jumpin' Jack Flash or, you know, uh, you know, coming to America had a, a white director. Does that mean coming to America doesn't speak to black cinema? Like it totally does. It was a huge turning point for for Eddie Murphy and for Arsenio Hall. Like it was a huge deal to have this that movie headlined by two black men and have the whole movie be about a positive, like a positive, you know, comedy about like a, a prince, like a Niger you know, like a not Nigerian because he's from that other country. His name is escaping me. Not Wakanda. Come on, Drew, you can do better. Nope, I can't apparently. Yeah, it's definitely a it's it's definitely a very difficult conversation to have. As I mean, like us, it's not a conversation for us as to. No, but I think it's a conversation we can have. <laughs> I think, no, I mean, I think yeah, we, we can have. I mean, like we are not gonna. 
our conversation is not the end all be all. No, but it's important of cinema and the conversation surrounding it. Of course not. Of course not. And of course we're not saying that, but I think it's important that we have these conversations because otherwise the thing that happens is if we don't have these conversations and we just do the thing where we're like, well, let's just ignore it and not talk about it because it's mm-hmm. it's too uncomfortable or it's like too weird and we're not really the people that should be having the conversations. And that sort of ghettoizes the whole experience. And then we get to mm-hmm. ignore it. And then we get to keep ignoring it and just focusing on the movies that like, are made by white people for white people and starring white people. Like, you know, unless we are willing to like interact and have a conversation about it, like the, the thing doesn't change. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's very true, very true. But we got a little bit off topic here, uh, guys. <laughs> a little bit off topic. That's just like, this is my thought. By the way, I'm not saying this because like I have some huge uh, like like historical love of these kind of movies. I find like a lot of stuff like, like so maudlin and so saccharine. I find a lot of these like not, not not this movie, but I mean, like, stuff like The Color Purple or, like, stuff like uh, um, uh, The Help. Like, I find them, like, really hard to watch not great mm-hmm. films, but I just think that, like, it is important that I watch them and that we have conversations about it. Yeah. yeah. And I and I do want to mention some of these ideas that I, I am putting out there is exactly that. I mean, that's one of my favorite uh, movies of the 60s. It's a great movie overall. That's and Sydney Poitier is amazing. Um, that's just I'm just reaffirming some things that people have told me as their point of view and their uh, as as their interpretations of black cinema. Here's so, I think where it begins and ends. I just wanted to let yes, just put that I, out I there. Think <laughs> if people get this, because we're talking about the Schmodown still, right? So like, mm-hmm. if people get a question on the black cinema slice that they are want to argue is not black cinema. They can challenge that in a categorical sense, the way that I did for American Psycho not being a horror film. And like that can be a challenge. And like that's when that situation comes up. But trying to that's guess ahead of time what does and doesn't count and like what can and cannot be studied is a fruitless exercise, I think. It makes it definitely a very, di- the thing is, even if you do challenge it, it makes it a very, very difficult category to challenge because there's no one definition. Whereas something like romance or remake is definitely a lot easier to challenge in, categorically. In the, IMDb, uh, in the Shmodan rulebook now, I think it says it has to be one of the three main IMDb tags uh, in order to count like if, in the categorical challenge mm-hmm. sense. But and the problem black is cinema is not. don't have yeah. IMDb tags like this. There's no black cinema IMDb tag. Mm-hmm. Like this was, That's if you check under Superfly, it's going to be what does it say that it is? It says that it's probably crime, like probably. Yeah. Yes, action crime drama. So like yeah. that's a little bit of a problem. But I really do think this is like what's what's his name said about pornography. It's like you'll know it when you see it. Now, do I think like Jumanji should count? Like no, but like you know, it's gonna it's gonna be a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. I really like, guys. Dance movies are also not categorically on IMDb. So like, there's been a lot of shit. Throughout or history, through movies. I mean, throughout this whole movie thing, whenever you get genres, like you're talking about like blurred lines. But the problem with this is like the blurred line is race. And so it becomes like a very hot topic, very hot button issue. And the fact is a lot of people aren't that familiar with these films. Not as many people, not as many competitors. But it, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that we don't need to be studying for them. That just means that we need to. Like that just means that we need to be putting in the effort to know these films and become more well-rounded. Why shouldn't we? I shouldn't be like, what are we expecting? Freaking like, back to the future? Yeah. Well, I am kind of curious to see how many of these films, black exploitation films in particular, are going to be added 
be considered for the wheel in general? Or is Superfly going to be on the 70s category? Um, The thing is, like I said, I I think it should. But thing is, you could argue that it wasn't a huge wide release. It it was. It was shown in theaters. But it wasn't like in every single theater. This would have made $11 billion in 1972. This movie absolutely counts. Yeah. But that doesn't apply to all but that doesn't apply to all black exploitation films. There's a one superfly, there's ten huge failures. I think we're trying to guess ahead of time what the slice is gonna be. And like I think we just need to chill out, see what it is, and then like, you know, then decide before getting all like our hackles raised and be like, how would I know this? Like, you know, I think the point of this slice is not only to make it so we are we are more clear about black cinema when we get the slice, but more so the entire game in general, we can incorporate more black films, like just in general. Mm-hmm. But also like not just yeah. black, like Kurosawa, like, you know, films are large, like films of a different experience, the white experience. Yeah. yeah, I yeah, I'm pretty excited. I am excited for our first uh, director with literally no English speaking films. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I'm excited for that category overall. Um, I, uh, oh, sorry. You know, let me turn off the my little fountain thingy. It's a little loud. Sorry, guys, I didn't mean to pop off. Like, this is just something I've been doing. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I, like I just mentioned, it just kind of makes things especially for any competitor or I am not envious of any of the competitors that are kind of going into these newer categories just because they are so some of them can be argued and challenged. I'm I'm envious. I'm like, I'm not envious. I'm happy. I'm happy to be doing the legwork on this now because a, I know not all competitors are going to, so I'm going to have a leg up like Mm -hmm. just, just straight up because I'm going to put in the time and work to go watch these movies. And maybe because I haven't seen a lot of these films, so, like, I'm seeing them for the first time, and a lot of them are fucking great. Like, Undercover Brother, when I first watched that, like, la- like earlier this year, or, sorry, like, last year, was amazing. Like, getting to watch these movies for the first time, like, Barbershop, like, just getting to watch these movies that are better than, like, the kind of random shit I would just put on Netflix usually. It's a mm-hmm. fun experience. Like, it's it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this has actually become the new Schmodown talk show, so... Uh, anyway, guys, well, no, this, this ties into our theme, like, you know, this theme of, of black exploitation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited overall. I'm excited to explore not only black exploitation films, but just more uh, black cinema in general. It's like really fun. I'm excited that oh, we have gone down this path for February and we continue to do so. Now, we are going to be, we have picked our movie for next week, haven't we? It's a very popular it's a movie that is recently has come up on Netflix. If you guys, it's our first time. This is our first time doing a movie. I think that's entirely bit like a streaming release. Uh, yeah. But I think it's a, it's one that counts. It's going to count under new releases when we do Shmodown. And so not bringing again to Shmodown, but I feel like that means because this would have come out in theaters. It is Chadwick Boseman's last film. Uh, it's based on August Wilson play, uh, directed directed by uh, what's his name, Joel? Not Joel C. Gray. Is it something? Directed by a really good guy. Um, it is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I can't think of the director's name. Um, it's, uh, let me pull it up real quick. Yeah, he's George a theater director. Wolf. Yes, see, well, right, because I was just thinking George C. Scott. Uh, what's his first name? 
His, yeah, George C. Wolf. Yes, George he directed a few other movies. They're not you. He's See, mainly known as like a theater guy. He, uh, he, he, he was the um. <gasps> Nights in Rodanthe. He directed Nights in Rodanthe. Director of Nights in Rodanthe, but more probably or more, more probably well known or like contextually well known is he was the uh, head of the Public Theater, which is where Hamilton first got its start before it went to Broadway. Like um, the Public is off Broadway, very well known like experimental theater space. That's like, he was the the head of that. Um, this movie is, oh, I can say this, I, I just watched it recently. It is really good, uh, really strong. And it's one of these things where it's like, do you want to watch like a play adaptation to a movie? A lot of times they, they fall into these certain tropes and they can be really talky and like, do you want to see it? This one, absolutely. I'm really excited to have you see it, Alex, because I think it's a really cool, interesting film. Viola Davis is like transformative in it. Chadwick is electrifying. Like the only thing about Chadwick's in this movie, it's like it's such a bummer because he's very, very skinny. Like you can clearly tell that like he was not physically well while making it. Um, and that's like kind of sad, but like he's incredible in it. It's a great, great film, and it, it's I'm really looking forward to talking about it next week. I've put off watching this for a while. Since it came out, I've been wanting to watch it um, since it came out, but I've been I've actually actively put um put off watching it because you know it's Bozeman's last film but he made before he unfortunately he passed and so I'm like I just I didn't want to watch it and I just have that let me tell you something you won't be able to forget while watching it that it is that it is a sick man performing his last film even though he's very skinny in it because he is so good and the energy he had, like I say, like electrifying is the adjective I would use because his energy in it, like it's like grabbing onto a live wire. It is so beautiful like, to watch. And he's so, it's it's like watching someone's life. Like it's just watching someone who's so full of life. Uh, and he was such a great performer that like, I don't know, I find it pretty inspiring to see that actually. Cause it's like, yeah, he is struggling. And like, you can take, you can physically see that it's like his body is, is small. Like he, his cheeks are sunken. But the performance he gives is not that of a sick man. And it's a great film. Viola Davis looks terrifying in it. She's like the scariest. She could be like a Marvel villain with how scary they make her look in this. Um, August Wilson, great playwright. Again, like, again, not somebody who I traditionally grew up with being like, this person speaks to my experience, but that's entirely the point. Uh, and this movie is really great. And it's not, it's not like one of these movies that's so overtly about like, white people are bad and black people are good. It's just, a, I mean, it, it has that like subtext, but it's more just about, I don't know, like how how black people how black people handle fame. I mean, how like the black experience with fame is different than the white experience with fame, uh, and success and talent and you know what it means. Uh, and I really I really liked it. Oh well, it's like we're not giving anything away, obviously, for next week, guys. We're gonna be covering that movie next Tuesday, so definitely stay tuned for that. And also the week after, we're gonna be having a, a few guests and a few. Mm -hmm. um, first guest in a quite a bit of time, so we've been a guest in a while. I feel like Sean was our last guest. Yeah, it's been a bit since we've had guests, so I'm excited to have Brina. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Was it Blazing Saddles? What was the last time we had somebody on? Was it Blazing Saddles or was it after that? I think it was Blazing Saddles. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. But uh, we are working on getting some more guests here over the coming months. And I do want to apologize ahead of time. My schedule, um, I'm in the process. I'm actually going to be moving here over the next few weeks. So I'm just going to be kind of MIA <laughs> a little bit. So please, uh, please forgive me as I kind of go through this whole process. I would really appreciate yeah. it. Wait, I want to know what Weston meant by this. Felt like I was in Tenet there for a bit. Why? <laughs> Why? More Roka? No, no Roka. Roka's not fun. Backwards? Oh, no. <laughs> okay, anyway, more Roka, says Weston. Uh, I also really like Christopher Atkins' review. I don't know if this is when Weston said great mini-review, LOL. I assumed he was talking about Christopher Atkins' review of Gridlock, which is, it's Tupac, Fanny Newton, and yeah, that white dude, Tim Roth. That's just like the greatest review of the movie I've ever heard. I'm going to go watch Gridlock. Because that white dude, Tim Roth, is, is that's great. What a great way of putting him. Uh, I've watched Danny Newton a couple things recently. Uh, I always knew Danny Newton as the Westworld chick, but apparently she's been in a ton of films. Uh, oh, yeah. I, the first film I saw her in, oh, shoot. I've seen her in a whole bunch of stuff. I You know, she was like in Mission Impossible. I remember her in a... I, I mean, she's been around for quite a while. I remember seeing her in a handful of English films in like the early 2000s. Yeah. She yeah. was in Solo. She was in Beloved. Like, and that movie is, uh, I think, really problematic. She was again, in Interview with a Vampire. Was she in Interview with a Vampire? Yeah. She was in Interview with a Vampire. Go me. That's my movie trivia moment. Yeah, um, yeah. He actually wrote um, a question for Bateman, and he didn't get that. And I was like, and he's like, "Oh, that's a trick. That's a good one." And he said, um, "Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt and Thandie Newton co-starred in what?" Well, co-starred um, strong, strong word. They didn't co-starred in nineties together. In well, that I mean, she's. I don't. I'm not even sure if they share a screen together at any point. Oh, they do because he kills her. Yeah, but she's not a co-star of the film. Like, that's yeah, but, that he, but she's yeah, but she's she's in the film. It was like one of her first roles, and yeah, yeah. No, I think it's fair. I think it's very she's, she's in actively in some scenes. Yeah, she's, she's not a star. Yeah. Why is it not playing up on IMDb? Because I forgot who directed it. Which one? Interview with the Vampire. Oh, oh, oh it was oh, the Vampire Chronicle. It has something, right? It was uh, no, it was um Neil Jordan. Neil Jordan, that's right. Yeah, Neil Jordan, the guy who did um, Butcher's Boy, and uh, mm -hmm. it was a big one he did in the 90s about the guy who turns out to be a girl, the Crying Game. Mm -hmm. You remember the Crying Game, guys? In the Company of Wolves, anybody? Any big in the Company of Wolf fan? He's an mm -hmm. Irish guy. Anyway, guys, thank you for, for joining us on Cinema Bias. Uh, Alex, where can people sort of find you? You can find me up there on Twitter at real underscore Alex Mack. You can also find me being part of the Cold Action Podcast. Um, again, I'm taking a little bit of a break over the next few weeks while I'm in the process of moving. So I'm not going to be having a schmobates or anything for a little bit. I'm actually going to be handing the hosting reins over to Billy Belford for the next few episodes. So just a heads up there. Um, but yeah, please follow us there. We'd also appreciate if you check us out on Patreon as well. Yes, and and pretty soon, uh, hopefully, we will we'll get an anchor up and running. Because I literally got a message today from a fan being like, "Why why is none of your stuff in podcast form?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, damn shit, I was supposed to get on that." Uh, so yeah, you can find me over at Video Drew. It's one word, uh, all caps. Video Drew uh, everywhere on social media uh, on this YouTube channel. Please like and subscribe and do all the things you're supposed to do. Um, on Twitter, Instagram, I'm on Letterbox. I'm on 
God, what are the kids on? I'm on TikTok. I don't really use TikTok. I do uh, a couple shows. I do on Mondays and Thursdays. I do the Video Chronic Pop Culture Quizzes. Uh, on th- it's at 8 p.m. PT. So Thursday we are doing Taxi Driver. So that's cool. Uh, if anyone wants in on that, you can win a couple bucks. Come on and play. See if you can answer 20 sort of interdictum style contextual questions about one film. Um, you can sign up to my Patreon, patreon.com backslash video drew, where you can do things like suggest a quiz for, for this, uh, for the video chronic quizzes. You can join me in study sessions that we hold pretty regularly for the Schmodown. Uh, there's a, you can come on cinema bias. There's a lot of fun options there. Um, then on Tuesdays, I do this show and Sundays I do live in the dark with video drew at 9 PM this week. We're having Mr. John Roca as a guest. Yeah. It's going to be good. It's going to be super fun. And you can find me getting puppies. I'm getting puppies this weekend. Go, Drew. Uh, and everyone, I hope everyone's staying safe out there because it seems like it's terrible in places that are not California uh, right now. And I feel real, I feel real bad for everyone who's cold. I don't like being cold at all. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, um, everyone down in Texas and a handful of other states. I know it's uh, affecting Texas more than. Any uh, more than most areas right now. So if you're down in Texas, please stay safe. Um, our thoughts and prayers really go out to you in your very difficult situation right now. Yeah. 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 Okay. So be well, guys. Be safe. Uh, we love you and uh, see you soon. Oh, yeah. I'm on the Schmodown. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. Just kidding. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>